Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> I always hate to disrupt that great energy, you know. Really good to see the passing of the peace. And it's really exciting to see some of your faces. I know this is a real process for people to get back to this idea of not wearing masks, but I think we're working on it. And it's just glorious to see all of you this morning and um, for those that are willing to, to see the smiles. When I was teaching my youngest child to ride a bike, I remember that child was almost obstinate in accepting my assistance. As I'd run alongside the bike, this young person would keep yelling back at me, let go, dad, I can do it myself. As a dad, you want them to ride by themselves but only after you feel assured that they're steady and can control themselves. I recall I was around six or seven years old, and I was obsessed with electrical outlets. <laughs> I remember getting near them and on occasion with objects and being told, no, David, that will hurt you. Don't do that. But do you think that stopped me? I eventually had to stick the end of a wire hanger into an outlet and feel the jolt. Yeah, you know what I mean. Justin, I got you. But then and only then did I heed those warnings. We all have stories like that, right? As younger kids, we're developing our sense of self-consciousness, self-identity, and agency. It's part of the human condition to pull away from our caregivers because we can do it ourselves. We can be told over and over again, don't touch that stove, it's hot. But all too many times, we have to touch to really learn that these caregivers know what they're talking about. But often it's trial by fire that we learn. In this very familiar passage of the parable of the prodigal son, a father has an estate on which there is ample nourishment and protection. The father has two sons that work and maintain that estate with him. The younger one unabashedly insists on his portion of the property because he plans to set off on his own, make his own way. He no longer wants to be controlled or nurtured by the father. He can do it himself. We'll begin in verses 12 to 15. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. As I looked over the original Greek version of this text, I came across the word usios, which does indeed mean property. But I feel like in the past, I've read this passage as if property was material in nature, like certainly in this case, physical money or belongings of value, so that the son could literally head off and thrive on his own independently. What I found very interesting was that usias means property, but it also means essence or being. So perhaps we can look at this passage in a different way. The son was telling his parent that he wants to take his essence, 
his being or the intrinsic property that he has by union with God, his real home, with him, away from that connection to his life source. It's that very divine essence, that divine being, that divine property that allows him to remain in loving connection with God that he subconsciously decides to sever. What if the son is saying to the parent, I don't need you. I can do it myself. It speaks to the autonomy that each human being desires as we grow from being infants and toddlers into self-conscious beings. This is the human condition and a journey that all human beings have to make. Someone once said, God has no, child- God has no grandchildren. What that phrase implies is that we're all directly children of God. Each person's journey away from God, one's return to God, the ebbs and the flows of those exiles and returns, to borrow phrasing from our Jewish siblings, and all the steps in between must be traveled by each person by themselves. As parents, like in my earlier example about the electric socket, we want to help our children avoid pain and discomfort in their lives and have them heed all of our cautionary tales, right? But everyone must touch their version of the hot stove to determine their life's path on their own, albeit unconsciously. As verse 13 just reminded us, we all need to travel away from our dependence on our life source in some form or fashion and travel to a distant country within ourselves. This might be the false self or the undeveloped self that we've spoken of in earlier homilies. A couple of weeks back, Christopher in his homily shared a slide of priest and theologian Henry Nguyen's Human Lies of a Person's Identity. Christopher's image had five lies on it, but he's typically most known for his first three, which are, I am what I have, I am what I do, and I am what other people say or think about me. These lies get baked into the food that we internalize and consume in life through all of our senses as a result of our culture, our upbringing, peer pressure, met or unmet expectations. We unknowingly internalize these lies and they begin to dictate our value in society. I have read a little about child psychology and development, so I'm certainly no expert. But what I've come to understand about the age of five or six months old, a child forms an identity as a separate self with needs and wants. From the moment that little six-month-old me is playing with another friend and see her or him take my toy and I grab it back, we are forever other from that moment on. It's that... It's the way with our connection with our life source, too. Infant babies are awash in God's presence through images and sounds and the care of their parents. We've probably all experienced watching a baby mesmerized, laying in the crib, watching a mobile go around in circles. But once a baby sees that a mother and father may not be right there when they need them, this idea of being separate from that source begins to take hold they start to build this identity as a separate self. So as we develop into toddlers, then children, then adolescents, then teenagers, then young adults, and then even older adults, these human lies can take hold of us 
as seen through the human being's programs for happiness offered by Thomas Keating that we mentioned a few months ago. And to recap, Thomas Keating's emotional programs for happiness are the human's need for safety and security, affection, esteem, and approval, and power and control. As I reflected on these programs for happiness and overlaid Henry Nguyen's human lies on them, I see that I was chasing all of those lies. I had an overattachment for affection, esteem, and approval. As a result, it led me to the unconscious need for the approval of my parents, esteem of my friends and coworkers, and affection from my former wife. You may be guessing that when these three human lies were not fulfilled, it led me to trying harder, doubling down, demanding respect from my children, questioning my former wife's love for me, challenging my coworkers and my boss whenever I was questioned. I had become arrogant and narcissistic. I needed these things and titles to solidify that people would see me accomplished, smart, valuable. That lie says I am what others say or think about me was really my own projection of what I believed about myself that I pushed onto others because I didn't know that I was valued intrinsically. I needed the outward world to validate me. In this case, my fear and my anger and my pride led to natural consequences. My first marriage fell apart, and I was fired from that prominent career. This is exactly what 19th century American philosopher Albert Hubbard was referring to when he wrote, we are punished by our sins, not for them. The sinful thoughts and misperceptions that lead to these sinful behaviors have the natural consequences built into them. Eventually, the natural order of the universe takes over, as it did in my case. But Richard Rohr, in his book, Falling Upward, describes this as a fall. His book title implies that in these moments when we suffer setbacks, disillusionment, despair, failure, that we can fall upward in our journey to or back into relationship with God. 15th century theologian and mystic Julian of Norwich offers us this. First, there is the fall. Then there's the recovery from the fall. And both are the mercy of God. Now, when I look back on those troubling moments in my life, I recognize that they were the times when I grew as a person. We can learn to break through the illusion of these false selves that we think are us. This brings back, us back to the text in verses 17 to 19. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Something happened to him when his egoic plans fell apart. There was remorse and a strong disapproval of himself. He makes this sudden move from overvaluation of himself, dare we say arrogance, to complete helplessness. Episcopalian priest and author Vincent Pizzuto shares this in about verse 17 in his book, Contemplating Christ. It is all the more moving that the son's return home is precipitated by his coming to himself, to come to oneself, to truly know oneself in relation to the divine 
is the first step in recognizing the illusion of our autonomy. The journey to oneself and back to God is one and the same movement. It seems to me that the parable of the prodigal son is often used to point out humans' arrogance, the sense that one chooses to disregard God's love, protection, and dependence consciously, and how the person eventually comes to ruin inside because that divine spark in them hungers to know and love ourselves as God knows and loves us. And in that verse, the son speaks of dying of hunger. What is this hunger? Perhaps it's the need to be nourished by God's food, the protection and the satisfaction that comes from being in relation and utter dependence on God for everything. But after we fall, we suffer such self-judgment that it's inconceivable to be worthy to be accepted again by God. I'd like to offer another perspective to the human being's hubris as a result of our innate self-pride and vanity. What if the child in the story that left for a distant country inside of themselves left because they felt God didn't care, wasn't looking after them, wasn't providing for their safety and security, felt disregarded and unloved by others, felt no agency or control in their lives? What if they never felt good enough as they compared themselves to others using those three human lies? Our true self in God is never present when we unknowingly fall victim to overvaluation of ourselves or undervaluation. When we are in a place of overvaluation, we don't need God because we're pretty good by ourselves, or so we think. When we don't feel good enough, worthy enough, valued enough, we undervalue ourselves. We abandon God because we think God has abandoned us. Both are really two sides of the same pride and vanity coin. That false version of ourselves that doesn't feel good enough compared to those three human lies wishes in some way that it would be on top, having those material things and titles and the affection of others, never realizing that they won't bring you home to God. When I was struggling to feel my value, struggling against those human lies, someone offered me this poem by Marianne Williamson in her book, Return to Love. Perhaps it's helpful for you in some way. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us. It's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give others permission to do the same. As we're liberated from our fear, our presence automatically liberates others. But as we come to ourselves, let's switch our focus to the Father in the story or God in our story. God never stopped caring for us and loving us from the distance that we unknowingly created. God patiently waits for us to come home. 
This brings us back to the text in verses 20 to 24. So he set off and went to his father, but while he was still off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around his son and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his staff, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What do we make of the parent in this parable? The source of our being, God. Whatever you wish to call this causation for all of us being here. For those that were here last Sunday or watched online, let's recall that video that Jenna had shared with us. If you didn't see the video, it's a video of the compassion, care, and patience of a young father as he watches his child crying in distress. The child is crying uncontrollably because there was something that it wanted or didn't want that challenged its sense of self. Perhaps it didn't want to get dressed or wear a diaper or go to bed. We we don't really know what the context of the video was. But the amazing part of that video highlights exactly what God is like as we leave and return. God patiently waits as we fight with those human lies, knowing that we are wired for struggle. God keeps loving us, and we insist that we can do it alone, exhausting ourselves, trying again, getting angry, resentful, over and over. Vincent Pizzuto, still in his book, Contemplating Christ, offered this about naming that parable the prodigal son. Since the 16th century, most English Bibles have referred to this passage as the prodigal son, though perhaps a more suitable title would be the prodigal father. The term prodigal means extravagantly wasteful, reckless, or uncontrolled. More broadly, it implies giving something away on a lavish scale. While the son is extravagant and wasteful in his money and certainly property, the father, who is the central figure of the story, conveys a love for his son that is more extravagant still, so lavish and uncontrolled as to be rightly called prodigal. God is giving away God's love to us on a lavish scale. Feel into that for a second. We have a hard time accepting, even intellectually, the idea that God's love for us is so radically giving, accepting of our falls, and patient for our return. It's preferred that we beat ourselves up for what we've done wrong and feel remorse for how we've hurt God, ourselves, and others. On some level, our remorse is necessary. Our mistakes and missteps point out that we are longing to return to God's home in ourselves, where we are truly ourselves with no human lies. That's the wonderful news. But part of the process is recognizing that we were made perfectly imperfect, And that letting those lies influence us leads us to more separation from our real home. The first time I was able to truly embody this idea was in January of 2014. I was on my first multi-day centering prayer retreat up at Cedar Break in Belton, about an hour north of here. They have numerous walking paths to hike around in solitude. And one of them is entitled Psalm 23, often known as the Psalm of David. Each of the verses, as you walk down the path, each of the verses is on its own signpost. So as you walk along, you can read it and 
reflect on it, taking the verse before proceeding to the next. For those of you that might not be familiar, it's the one that begins, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I was in a place of complete disorientation, finding myself in a distant country in myself. I came upon the signpost for verse 5, and it reads, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. For the first time in my life, in my life, I felt loved by God unconditionally. This moment was a moment in my life when my disorientation and being lost in who I was, I was able to embody God's prodigal love for me, just like the father in the parable. God set God's table for me that included my internal enemies within me. I began to feel my worthiness in a real way. What are your moments? Finally, we close in verses 29 to 32. The older son answered his father, Listen, for all these years I've been working unceasingly for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back who has devoured your property with others... You killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. I think what's so clever about this parable is that Jesus also focuses on the disposition of the older son, the one who remained connected to the father's estate. Why did he? Was he really content and fulfilled being there? Or was it out of a sense of responsibility, perhaps? Was his reluctance to leave off on his own out of a sense of his freedom to stay and be faithful? Or was it out of a sense of duty and the possibility of being rewarded even more so for being the obedient child? Or worse, being punished for being unfaithful and disobedient? The story gives us the answer, I think, because of his attitudes towards the prodigal sibling that had come home and the resentment that he felt and expressed because of his envy that this wasteful and selfish brother had acted so poorly, came home, and was received with open arms. We really have both siblings inside of us, don't we? I came across this illustration by pastor and artist David Hayward, who goes by the name The Naked Pastor. In this illustration, Jesus is coming back from finding the one lost sheep, carrying him, in this case, on his shoulders. And then one of the 99 sheep is there as Jesus passes by and says, whoa, whoa, that sheep wasn't lost. We kicked him out. Sometimes our certainty that we are faithfully living in God's essence and being might be a false sense of identity. The self-conscious ego is always looking for an identity project to consider. And this one might be one of Spiritual pride and certainty, possibly. It can lead us to dualistic thinking and trying to make God in our image and co-opting God for our purposes that inadvertently exclude instead of including. What can we make from this story? That we're all perfectly imperfect. And even when we see how we've pulled away from God and returned through life, that it's never over. Every second, we're leaving and coming home. 
even when we're resting in the comfort of God's estate, we can still lose our sense of God's radical love that includes everyone, even those we might wish were excluded. Oftentimes in this season of Lent, people will give up or sacrifice something. It has been taught to me to sacrifice something I like in Lent, like sweets, as a sign of Jesus' sacrifice for us. But I was recently presented with a different idea of sacrificing in Lent. What if we saw giving up something in Lent as a way to break the mechanicality of our thinking and seeing the world? I invite you all to think of sacrificing judgment of both ourselves and others as a possibility, or giving up negativity. Try giving up seeing and reacting to the world through dualistic ideals, ideals of right and wrong, better than or less than. The journey is really trying to embody God's prodigal love for us all and then trying to share that love. That's the big, that's the big leap for us. So I wish to close this time with a prayer that was written by Thomas Merton, if you'll join me. My God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me. And you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen.